My topic for discussion today is the conflict in the Middle East. Exactly 40 years ago this week, Israel defeated three Arab armies in the Six-Day War and took control over great swathes of their territory. Today, Israel still occupies the West Bank, there is a wall separating it from its Palestinian neighbors, and there is sporadic violence between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza. So, what are the prospects for peace? In the 60 years since Israel was founded, there have been five wars and two intifadas. Were they inevitable? If not, why hasn't a lasting peace been achieved? What went wrong? And who is to blame for a conflict which has seen thousands on both sides killed and which still shows no signs of abating? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Israel's elder statesman, Shimon Peres. He has been continuously active in Israeli politics since joining the labor movement even before the State of Israel was founded in 1948. Since being elected to the Knesset almost half a century ago, he has served in many ministerial posts, including twice as Prime Minister. But his greatest achievement came in 1994, when, as Foreign Minister, he finalized the Oslo Peace Agreement, which led to him sharing the Nobel Peace Prize with Yasser Arafat. Two years ago, the former socialist kibbutznik controversially left the Labour Party to join the Kadima-led government of Ariel Sharon, Labour's old foe. He remains Deputy Prime Minister in that government under Sharon's successor, Ehud Olmert. Mr Perez, in your evidence to the Vinograd Commission, you said that if it were up to me, I wouldn't have started this war, referring to last year's war against Lebanon. Can you explain well, why? Uh, I wouldn't like to go to, to that uh, issue. I can only say that that's half of the quotation. Because I said also, if we shall be attacked, clearly we have to defend ourselves. But when you said from the transcript, if it were up to me, I wouldn't have started the war. I can't go because he didn't say it after the war. I said it during the deliberation in the government. And it's a little bit complicated. And I'm not in a position to reveal the whole story. So I don't want to deal with it. You also said that you can't say that the war failed. But you also can't truthfully say that the war succeeded. The war was a military success, but a psychological problem. That's what I said. What did you mean by psychological defeat? It came out that Hezbollah boost as though they won the war, which is nonsense. And we talked in many voices, so we lost the psychological battle. That's what I meant. In retrospect, do you think that it would have been better if there had been no war? It would be better if Hezbollah wouldn't attack us. Once they attacked us, we were left without a choice. I wouldn't go for any initiative of war. But clearly, if they fired a missile to Haifa and they started to shoot around, we didn't have a choice. One of the criticisms that was made of the way in which the war was conducted was that the degree of force used by Israel was disproportionate. That uh, I don't buy. By whom was Who said it? Well, for example, Mr. Eli Yishai, who was then one of the deputy prime ministers and a member of the security cabinet, said if the Hezbollah fires Katushas, we have to deliver a severe blow to Lebanon's infrastructure, black out Beirut, cut off electricity, turn off the water. But then he said if Lebanese citizens pay the price, they will rise up against Hezbollah. Yes, but all this didn't happen, as you know. I mean, there was an attack on the Hezbollah headquarters in Beirut. But we were aware that uh, it's a military installation. It was empty of people. Nobody was killed there. So Beirut wasn't cut off and Beirut wasn't bombed and the electricity wasn't cut off. But there was a great deal of destruction of infrastructure. And what do you mean infrastructure? Depends where. Well, ports, lighthouses, grain silos, bridges. Well, only, only when they used it to fire missiles 
or to deliver missiles. There were times they used the port for smuggling, so we stopped it. There wasn't any intention, as far as I know, to attack civilian targets. So you wouldn't accept that there was a deliberate policy of no. trying to put pressure, political pressure, no. on the Lebanese government no, I don't think so. to close down Hezbollah? The fact is that all those things that Mr. Rishai mentioned were on target, were on attack. The um, result of the war is that Hezbollah are still in place and they still are armed. What has been achieved from the point of view of Israel? In the whole area between uh, the Litani River and the Israeli border is today manned by two forces, the Lebanese army and the Unifil force, 30,000 people and not the Hezbollah. We asked all the time that the Lebanese army will replace the Hezbollah to be deployed on the border with Israel. And that's what happened. That's number one. Secondly, I think Hezbollah paid the heavy toll. They lost apparently 650 or 700 of their fighters. Thousands were wounded. They, many houses were destroyed because they meant Hezbollah and their weapons. Hezbollah say they are going to restore it. To this very day, they did not restore it. And uh, they didn't answer the question, why did they go to war? What for? What did they have in their minds? What is the justification of it? And also they don't answer a question, which I'm all the time surprised. Can you really permit in any land to have an army within an army and a state within a state to serve as an agent of Iran in the heart of the Lebanese? The problem of Lebanon is not Israel, the problem of Lebanon is Hezbollah. And you cannot close your eyes. It's basic. You know, we tried four times to make peace. Twice we succeeded, twice we failed. We succeeded with Egypt and Jordan, we failed with the Palestinians and the Lebanese. The obvious reason is clear. The Egyptians and the Jordanians have a government, have an army, have a policy, and serves an address. The Lebanese and the Palestinians are divided. They have many governments and no government, many armies and no army, many projects and no projects. So that is the real difference. Otherwise, we would do with the Palestinians and the Lebanese the same thing we did with the Egyptians and the Jordanians. Well, if we could look at the opportunities for peace. In 1995, when you took over from Prime Minister Rabin, you were trying to continue his peace initiative with President Assad, and you sent a message, are you prepared to fly high and fast? Yes. And that came to nothing because there were some terrorist bombs in Israel. Your party lost the next election. And Mr. Netanyahu failed to honor the initiative that Mr. Rabin had started and you had continued. Do you think that that was a lost opportunity for peace? Well, there are many losers. It's not simple. But uh, first of all, let me distinguish between two parts of your question. One is the negotiation with the Syrians, and the other is the relations with the Palestinians. What brought me down was were the Palestinians, not the Syrians. The Syrians, I got a message from the United States by Warren Christopher, who was in the Secretary of State, that Assad thinks that he can talk with me and we can make peace. President Clinton asked me if I'm aware of all the promises that Rabin gave to the Americans. I said, I hope I know all of them, but if Rabin promised something that I'm unaware of, either in writing or orally, I shall respect it, no problem whatsoever. And uh, that was delivered to the Syrians. But I told them, look, uh, we are at the beginning of 1996. By the end of 1996, we have to go to elections anyway. I cannot go to the elections with an open stomach. If you want to negotiate, you have to conclude it before the election. I cannot just start negotiations and say I'm ready to do this and that and not having any reply. 
So the Americans told me that the answer of Assad was, I'm ready to meet you. I said, we have to negotiate fast, in a short while, reach an agreement. In order to do it, let's meet and cut uh, the corners. So I got back an answer, I'm ready to meet you, but I can't fix the time. So I told the Americans jokingly, look, a girl without a date is like a date without a girl. <laughs> That's not an answer. Then what happened with the Palestinians was tragic, because I took over uh, from Rabin. I know that the time is short. So I gave back to the Palestinians 460 settlements, six cities. Then the Palestinians asked me to have elections, including Jerusalem. I went for it. A great risk. And all of a sudden they started again with acts of terror that nobody understood. Bomb in a bus in Jerusalem, middle of the day, the early in the morning in the day. Next day in Tel Aviv, next day again in Jerusalem. I know that they are killing me. And I went to Arafat. I told him, stop it. You don't permit me to implement. He says, yes, yes, yes. He didn't do it. But then I told him, look, if you won't do it, I shall do it myself. And then he took actions. He arrested 100 heads of the Hamas, he killed 20, he shaved their beards, but it was too late. I lost the elections because of it. Because Netanyahu said, look what he gave, look what he got. And then Arafat was told was crying, but it was too late. His tears didn't replace my ballots. Well, if it had not been for that, do you think that there would have been a possibility of a peace settlement with Syria in '96? Yes. And that, of course, would have been the best way, wouldn't it, of solving the problem of Hezbollah and Lebanon? Yes. Looking at the Palestinians, Mr. Ben-Gurion famously said in 1967 that the West Bank and the occupied territories should be given back, possibly not Jerusalem because of the historical ties. And looking back over the last 40 years, don't you think it was a historic mistake not to give back the occupied territories. We gave back to Egypt and Jordan all the water, all the land, all the oil. We didn't keep anything for ourselves. Why? Because there was a partner. We couldn't make peace with Egypt under Nasser. We could make peace with Egypt under Sadat. We could make peace with Jordan under Hussein. The problem with Arafat was that without him it wouldn't start. With him we couldn't finish. That was the problem. Now you cannot do anything without negotiations. Then they say land for peace. We gave all the land and we didn't get all the peace back. Well, you say you gave all the land. You didn't give any land in the West Bank and Gaza. Because in the West Bank and Gaza, it was complicated. The West Bank was under Jordanian rule. Gaza was under Egyptian rule. They never gave it to the Palestinians. We were the first in Oslo to suggest it to them, to create a nation. The border should have been negotiated. It wasn't an international border like with Egypt, like with Jordan, or like with Lebanon. And uh, we were ready to move ahead. We gave back, I mean, we divided into three zones, A, B, and C, and we wanted to do it gradually, stop step by step, but we were ready to start. The problem is that the Palestinian leadership did not control the terror, couldn't stop the terror. But has the problem not been made much worse by the massive increase in Israeli settlements in the West Bank over the last 40 years? Maybe. Look. The history of Israel is divided into two parts. One, under attack, that we have had to defend ourselves. When you defend yourself, your thinking is totally different than when you want to make peace. For example, I authorized a settlement nearby Jerusalem, because I thought Jerusalem was in danger. Under peaceful condition, I wouldn't do it. I think that until 1973, until the war of Kippurim, Israel was totally under threat. We were outmanned, outgunned, never had the slightest chance of peace. 
only in 73 it started to change. So under attack, you behave like if you want a hawk. When peace comes, you become a dove. So people are asking me, why did you change uh, your opinion? I didn't change my opinion. When we were in danger, I worked for the defense of the country. When we had a chance, I worked for the peace. But in the 35 years or so since the um, Yom Kippur War, Israel has not been under immediate attack from its Arab neighboring countries. And during that time, there has been an enormous increase in the settlements. For example, during the period when you and Mr. Rabin were prime ministers between 92 and 96, I think, there was a 50% increase. No, what happened is that we have inherent the government of Mr. Netanyahu. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think Netanyahu permitted 24,000 houses to be built on the West Bank. We decided to stop it. We went through all the legal uh, conditions and we came to the conclusion that we cannot stop 12,000 that were al already under construction. Legally, we couldn't stop it. So it's true that 12,000 houses were added and 12,000 houses were crossed out because we act under legal conditions. Between 1992 and 1996, there was a 50% increase in settlers from 100,000 to 150,000. Well, that includes Jerusalem too. I mean, the idea of settlements is different from our concept and the Palestinian concept. They include people who are settled in Jerusalem as a settlement, which is not serious, because they too, they increase their population in Jerusalem. So what? You say you were acting under legal constraint, but yes. this is all territory which, under the 1947 partition of the United Nations, was not part of the land of Israel. Right, but they refused to take it. Ben-Gurion was ready. They rejected it. You cannot say, I don't take it, I attack you. If I shall win, okay. If I shall lose, I shall win too. You cannot do it. But are you suggesting that the fact that the Arab armies attacked in 1948 means that the Palestinians living in the West Bank forfeited for all time their legal rights to, no, to that the, territory? the problem was well, what is the West Bank, not the people. But what is the West Bank? Because, you see, the Arabs too, they agreed to 1967, not to 1948. They understand it. Well, it changed the concept of the borders, yes. Look, you cannot go to war, lose the war, and then say, pay me a price. Why should you pay a price? If you go to war once, twice, three times, the next time, say, just a moment. Next borders should be defensible. And that's in according with 242 and 238. But what are you suggesting are defensible borders in relation to the West Bank? Is it the Green Line? More or less there was an agreement in Camp David when Barak and Arafat were heading the negotiations. It was agreed that 67 borders minus, I don't know how much, 6%, 7%, 8%, that should be traded with 6 or 7% elsewhere. Why? Because in the meantime, we have had facts that is very hard to deal with, like the settlements. So the idea was at that time to concentrate the settlers on 2 or 3 or 4 percent, 5 percent. I can't give you the exact number because it wasn't an exact number. And uh, the rest, we shall say, okay, we took from you 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 percent. shall compensate. The defensible border is not only a matter of size, it's also a matter of demography, of layout. Well, Moshe Dayan once said about the settlement that their purpose was not because they can ensure security better than the army, but because without them we can't keep the army in those territories, and without them the Israeli Defense Force would be a foreign army ruling a foreign population. Maybe, he thought that way. Do you think, in relation to the wall, that that has been a major step backwards? No, I don't think so, because, you see, Israel was attacked by suicidal murders, suicidal bombers. We have had to stop it, and the wall stopped it. The fact is that since the war, we practically don't have suicidal bombers. 
First of all, is that not partly due to the Hamas de facto ceasefire rather than the wall? No, I don't think so. I'm sure it's not. I know I was in all those occasions where decisions were taken. I know the real story. We reluctantly build a wall. And also the wall was changed many times to bring it closer to the green line. Well, there is only an escape from the green line, I think, of 8% or something like it. Well, it is about 8%. And as you'll be aware, Jimmy Carter, President Carter, in his book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, in an article about his book, he says it describes what he calls the abominable oppression and persecution in the occupied Palestinian territories with a rigid system of required passes and strict segregation. What would he do? Palestine citizens. What would he do? And Israel. What would he do? I mean, uh, look... It's very hard to criticize, but when the United States is facing problems in Iraq or in Afghanistan or Vietnam or Korea, they take military measures. It's very easy to give empty advice. I would respect the idea, the opinion of Carter if he would suggest an alternative. All the attempts to stop terror were in vain. You know, in England too, you take a lot of measures that otherwise you wouldn't take. By having cameras in all the streets, by following suspected people, yes, you do it, because you want to defend your life. But isn't the positioning of the wall such that it is simply designed to increase no. the scope for, set for expansion of the Israeli settlements? I don't think so. I don't think the wall will play a role in it. If you drive around the wall, you see the wall is very hard up against the borders of the Palestinian towns. The and border is far against the, the, the centers. They're against the centers of terror, and they follow the line. I mean, uh, the escape of 8% uh, can easily be changed or corrected. I don't think it's a problem. You were originally against the wall, were you not, and threatened to resign? Well, I thought that the wall should be very close to, if at all. And I thought we have to take other measures. I don't want to go into it. I thought we could have taken maybe more electronic measures. But it came out, it didn't uh, function. If you go to, for example, Bethlehem, people say that Bethlehem is in effect being encircled. First of all, there are some 24 Jewish settlements around Bethlehem, and now the combination of the wall to the north and the west and the roads, the bypass roads, which link the Jewish settlements, effectively create segregation Look, I, I between can Bethlehem. Go, I can go into polemics endlessly, but I shall tell you. I went to the airport in Gaza to negotiate with Arafat, his ceasefire. While we were there, we were bombed, doesn't matter. I told him, look, there are these and these gentlemen who are firing from Bethlehem against Jerusalem. Tell him to stop it, because we, will not, we shall not have a choice. And they gave him the name of the family that did it. He called in his chief of staff, says, stop it. I went back home, satisfied. Before I came back home, the fire continued. Nothing was done. Sarafat says, you will see tomorrow morning, it will be finished. Okay. Tomorrow morning, our army saw with their own eyes the family that was firing, running with jeeps, open jeeps, in the streets of Bethlehem. So I call my father says, what are you doing, tell me? You force us to take measures. Has no. Israel not itself paid a very high price for 40 years of occupation in terms of brutalization of soldiers? Look, be fair to Israel. Israel took the partition plan of the United Nations that was terrible for her. She was attacked by seven armies. We didn't have an army. We have had a war before we had a state. Then again, in 1956, they created the Father Union Gaza under the auspices of Nasser. The Russians sent in heavy arms that we didn't possess, tanks and planes and missiles, threatening us. Then on top of it, he closed the Strait of Tehran. Everything. What would you expect us to do? 
Well, for example, David Grossman, the writer, in a speech that he made at a peace meeting last year, said Israel has degenerated into heartlessness, cruelty towards the weak and the poor, and Israel, in the face of profound institutionalized racism towards its Arab minority, displays apathy. Look, war is not a pleasant experience. I wish we could do it without it. But we were against, really, a storm. In 1956, we stopped it for 10 years. That was the best period for everybody, including the Palestinians. Until again, 67 came, and another initiative of war started. You know, it's easier to analyze backward than to face an actual situation. When you face it, it doesn't look as simple and easy when you do it in the aftermath. But do you not think that, looking back over the last 40 years to 1967, that Israel will regret not having taken I regret more risks? It. I regret it. Peace? I regret it, but we didn't have with whom to talk. Look, I thought the best solution would be what was called the Jordanian option. I negotiated with the king. We reached an agreement. I think, mistakenly, the party at the time, uh, the Likud, rejected it. It was the greatest mistake we did. But once the Jordanians were out, we have had to negotiate with the Palestinians. The choice was either to negotiate with Fatah or Hamas. We preferred Fatah. Otherwise, Hamas would be in charge. And if Hamas would be in charge, it would be a totally Iranian copy. The problem is that we are Afat too. He was reluctant and hesitant and changed his mind. But we went a very long way. Nobody before us recognized the Palestinian people, Palestinian personality, the Palestinian land. No Arab country. Nobody. That's the other side of the Grossman story. We took risks at home and under attack all the time. So it's not, it wasn't our free choice. Are you surprised, 14 years after Oslo, that there has been still no peace with the Palestinians? You know, 14 years is a long time in private life. Historically, it's different. First of all, there is an Arab uh, authority. We gave them land, we gave them control. Look, take now the situation in Gaza. As an example, to answer your question, we withdrew there with our army. We took back the settlements by force. We gave them back everything. Can I explain to any Israeli why are they continuing to fire missiles? I can't. But you are faced with what you are faced with, and... At the moment, the Israeli government is taking the position that it won't talk to the National Unity Government because it has within it elements, democratically elected elements, of Hamas. Is that not a mistake? It's not talking. They support terror. government. Suppose you would have a government with the IRA in, in England. Would you talk? No. And they say we shall continue with terror. And they say we shall not negotiate with you. What would you do? But there's rhetoric on both sides, isn't there? The no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's rhetoric. Because well, they are smuggling arms, they are building tunnels, and they shoot. But, for example, Mr. Lieberman, who is another deputy prime minister in this government, has said, for example, that Arab members of the Knesset who talk to Hamas should be executed. So he said, uh, executed, he didn't say, expelled, I think. No, executed. Uh, this is a deputy prime minister of Israel. Uh, so he said, but he's following the policy of the government, which wouldn't dream about anything like it. But So he tries to impress some of his followers, but in fact, he's submitted to the policy of the government. 
But he also talks, for example, of disenfranchising those Israeli Arabs living in border towns that be moved to the West Bank. But isn't a government which opposes it. Well, doesn't this just show that there is a difference between rhetoric and what actually takes place on the ground? Yes, there is a difference. But in our case, the difference is a government that wants peace and a minority doesn't want peace. Here is a government that doesn't want peace. A prime minister that says, I shall not talk with you. A prime minister who says, I shall support every resistance in all forms. A prime minister who says, we shall respect the agreements, but we shall not implement them. What do you want us to do? Look, I don't think that we have to apologize all the time because there are basically the wrong questions. Why can't they have an army, one government, go for peace? They could have gotten everything back, like the Jordanians, like the Egyptians, them, the Syrians, everybody. And we cannot uh, all the time to justify their refusals. You justify and refusal, you have another one. So where does it lead? Isn't time against Israel in no. relation to peace? No, time is for Israel. Well, you say, again, in your evidence to uh, the Vinograd Commission, you describe President Ahmadinejad of Iran. You say his ambitions are global, and you would truly refer to him as Satan or Hitler, and that you say that we shouldn't talk to him, but at the same time you say we can't lead a military operation and should not lead a military operation. But nonetheless, he is seeking to destroy Israel. Do I take it from that that you are against the idea of Israel taking any kind of preemptive strike against a? I think Ahmadinejad is a danger to the world, and I wouldn't suggest that we should condense him. The danger to Israel. Israel is not leading the world, and the fact is, the world is fighting him. Now, the problem of war or other means is a serious problem, and I seriously wouldn't jump to war. You know, contrary to many other people who criticize the United States right and wrong all the time, I can see another line, which is impressive. You can fight either the bombs or the owners of the bombs. That is your choice. Fighting the bombs by the military or fighting the owners by economy. The Americans has had four successes, starting with Ukraine, that gave up their bombs, nuclear bombs. They got $250 million economic aid. Not bad. The second was Gaddafi, where apparently private talk and promises took place between him and I think England was involved as well. And he gave up the mass destruction weapons. Let's not forget that Americans bombed this chemical installation at the beginning. Today it's a different country. The third is South Africa, where a combination of economic sanctions and a change in the government by Mandela brought an end to their attempt to reach an atomic option. The fourth is North Korea. They asked $25 million. I believe America can afford it. The fifth is now Iran. I believe there is a preferable measure to stop it, and that is by using economic sanctions instead of military attack. I think that Iran is poor, corrupted, with a dissatisfied people, a high unemployment, a high inflation. And finally, they cannot feed their children with enriched uranium. You cannot be rich militarily and poor economically. You have a country to run. The only problem is that it's very hard to have a coalition. The Europeans have their views, the Russians have. But finally, they do it. And I believe that Ahmadinejad will fall down. Personally, I have also, I'm almost thankful to him, because he organized the West. The West didn't have a leader, you know. He forced them to come together. But if you ask me, it's an absurd to let such a dangerous man have nuclear weapons in his hands. And the way to do it is by political, economic, and psychological pressure. But not military means. Why do you jump to military means? Try this. But if it doesn't work? 
then we shall have another interview. Why should I go in speculations that sound so belligerent, well, unnecessary? You, the reason I ask is because you say in your evidence to the Vinograd Commission, I don't know how long the Middle East will remain without nuclear weapons, probably not long, maybe five or ten years. Yes. When you say the Middle East, do you mean presumably Iran? or do you I mean don't know, there may be others as well. Well, that's a very pessimistic view, isn't it? No, I think that we have to do in a hurry, because I think that not only Israel, I think the Saudis, the Emirates, the principalities are unhappy about the Persians as we are. But when you therefore say, since we can't prevent the penetration of nuclear weapons, we need to prevent the reasons for attacking us, and in other words, reach a full peace in the near future. Yes. That does suggest time is running against you, doesn't it? Against peace. Well, you say, if we remain in the disputed territories and they will have nuclear weapons. I don't know if they'll bomb us with an atom bomb, but they will definitely become very stubborn in negotiations. Yes, yes that's what I said. Well, looking to the future... I look, I'm impatient about peace. Don't make a mistake. I don't suggest to postpone anything. But I have to be realistic enough to look what are the possibilities. Can we look at those possibilities briefly? Yes. What do you think Israel needs to concede in order to have a lasting peace with the Palestinians? I don't know if we can do it only with the Palestinians because they are divided and we cannot uh, unite them. They cannot unite themselves and we cannot replace them. But what I think is that we hanged too much on the military and diplomatic avenues and too little on the economic one. I believe that everything important that took place since the Second World War was done by the economic locomotive rather than the military tank. And I think we have to employ it and I'm working very hard to do so. We are now having an agreement, the beginning of agreement, among the three of us, the Jordanians, Palestinians, and us. And, you know, we spend so much money on war and weapons. If we shall begin to spend on economy and raise the standard of living, then we may create another chance for peace. And I'm also for negotiations in a parallel way. I think there must be negotiations between the pair of us, the Palestinians and Israel, independently of the economic endeavor. And an economic cooperation in a parallel manner, detached from the political land, where the three of us will participate, the Jordanians, the Palestinians, and us. This is a call not just by politics, but also by nature. We cannot save the Dead Sea, we cannot fight pollution, we cannot distribute water, unless we shall cooperate. Do you expect to see a Palestinian state in your lifetime? Yes, yes. And do you expect the problem of Jerusalem to be solved in your lifetime? Yes. And uh, in a different climate. You know, there are things that you cannot solve in a time of suspicion and worry. and Everything is inflated and exaggerated and sensitive. So I think that the problem of Jerusalem should be postponed for a different season. Just finally, the economic effects of the current government policy of not talking to Hamas and withdrawing, withholding to, taxation no, has I'm been... talking to Abu Mazen. We don't, we didn't look. Would there be one government? Should have talked with one government. But since the united government is united administratively and divided politically, so politics, we have to talk with whomever wants to talk with us. We cannot force anybody to talk with us. But withholding taxation, there has been... We the only thing that we are not holding taxation, we want to make sure that the money won't go to Hamas, that is buying arms and building tunnels. We want to strengthen Abu Mazen, but not strengthen uh, Hamas. But the objective effect of this in the last year has been 30% increase in poverty, a 6% reduction in So GDP maybe, maybe the Palestinian people will ask themselves too, what do we need Hamas for? What did they bring us? Look, we didn't create a poverty. 
we would go for open, you know, we handed over the greenhouses. We ourselves collected money for the Palestinians, but Hamas destroyed everything. Wasn't the unilateral disengagement a mistake because it played into the hands of Hamas and, um, and showed the Palestinians? I, I, I thought that we have to do it by that all. That's my view, it's known and uh, I don't have... But, look, the difference between now and other times is... In other times, the army supported the economy. Today, the economy is supporting the army. You can achieve with the economy more than you can achieve with the military. And it so happened that there are countries that have a military and they don't have an economy, like most of the Arab countries. And they cannot continue their rebellion forever. There is nobody to support it. You cannot have a poor people and a rich arsenal. That's what Hamas wants to do. And we are not ready to finance their arsenal in the name of the people who suffer. It's their problem as well as ours one. If you can reach an agreement to make sure that the money will reach the people, there won't be problems. We don't want that they will go through the increase of the house. We have a problem. It's not simple, I know it. But I am not different in my views from Abu Mazen. He has the same thing. Why, why don't they release the captured, uh, the hijacked uh, soldier? They hijacked him on our land, on our territory. Do you think that the electoral system in Israel is counterproductive in the sense that it slows the peace process down to the lowest common denominator? I think we have to change the electoral system because, you know, what's happening is government found it very hard to be for peace, not because there is a division about the value of peace, but because there is a division about the cost of peace. The cost of peace creates parties, and before you negotiate with the other party, you are beginning to increase your own party. So that's a problem, and for that reason I think we have to introduce global and regional forces. And I think there is a ready. I think non-governmental institutions are today better than governmental institutions for certain purposes. I just wrote a book that will be published, I believe, in the next few months, which is called The Privatization of Peace. Well, coming back to where we started, you say in your autobiography that the Zionist blueprint almost ignored Arab national aspirations. Do you think that's right, still? If I wrote it, it's right. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I'm almost bored with the past. I'm so disinterested in it. For the simple reason, you can't change it. So why analyze it? Why waste time? What we have is to look for opportunities in the future. And they are not the same like in the past. The world has changed. The reason is changing. Everybody, everything is changing. Well, a hundred years ago, Nagib Azuri wrote that the reawakening of the Arab nation and the growing Jewish efforts at rebuilding the ancient monarchy of Israel, these two movements destined to fight each other continually until one of them triumphs over the other. Do you think he was right or wrong? No, wrong, totally wrong. First of all, you cannot have a Jewish monarch in our time. It's anti-Jewish <laughs> <laughs> inclination. Us having a monarch, it's crazy. Secondly, there are variations. There's nothing like an Arab world. We have relations with Egypt, we have relations with Jordan, we have informal relations with many other countries. The silent relations are different from the announced. There is a silent change among the Arabs in Israel itself. They understand that education is more important than agriculture. They have already 50,000 academicians. Every year 90,000 Arab children are registering in the universities. Most of them are women. I mean, you cannot just look at the map on its political face. There are more layers to the story and more undercurrent than we see. And peace with Syria? Do you expect to see that in your lifetime? 
Yes, I mean, the problem is Syria is being governed by minority government. And they don't like decisions because Assad was offered everything, my God. Why did he refuse? Would he go together with Sadat to Camp David? He would got the Golan Heights back. But they keep postponing. They say they have time. So if they have time, they waste time. If you have time to waste, the time is unimportant. Pulling out of Golan in exchange for Syria, you think is a peace deal that could happen in your lifetime? I don't say under which condition, but I say peace may be in my lifetime. By the way, I'm not in a hurry to die. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ferris, thank you very much. Indeed. You're welcome. <laughs>